Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. Today, we're getting into the festive mood with a look at some of the content from the BMJ's Christmas issue. We also take a look back at the year and have our Christmas quiz, where I'll be testing Jenny and Navjoy on their ITU slang and find out how well they know the Bristol stool chart. I'm Tom Nolan, I'm a GP in London and clinical editor for the BMJ, uh, and I'm joined by Jenny and Navjoy as ever. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Tom. I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. And Navjoy, hi. Hi, I'm Navjoy Lada. I am a clinical editor at the BMJ and a locum GP in London. Hi. So yeah, so Christmas episode, so we're trying to try and keep the mood upbeat, um, despite what's going on around us. Um, I mean... I, I guess on that, you know, it feels like every couple of weeks, doesn't it, where another unbearable thing happens. Um, but I suppose apart from doing this podcast, um, how's, your, how's your year been, Nafjoy? <laughs> like good under the circumstances, I guess. Yeah. I'm, I'm healthy. I've got a job. Uh, I like my job. So that's, you know, I feel like they're major, major positives to take away to take away from um, the year. And Jenny, we'll we'll let you off that at that point. How's your year been, Jenny? You're still in lockdown, I think, or some sort some form of lockdown in New Zealand. I guess that wasn't what what you're expecting. No, uh, yeah. not really. We're in the traffic light traffic light framework now, which means that most of our restrictions are on for people who are vaccinated. Mm. Um, so things are looking a lot brighter. It doesn't hurt that it's summer here in New Zealand. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would say my year has been a mixed bag, really lucky that, you know, we're healthy and, you know, have a job and all that kind of stuff, which you cannot take for granted. But at the same time, um, I think, you know, COVID uncertainty, it just kind of feels like treading water sometimes. And it's, it's difficult to not have clarity about looking forward to the future. Mm, yeah. Um, and what about with the podcast then? Because we've been doing this for nearly t- two years now, every couple of weeks. Um, and that's the unbearable thing that happens every two weeks. I'm not sure if that was very clear at the start. Um, but no, it is, it is a lot of fun. But uh, yeah, what's your highlights been of, of this year's podcast, Jenny? Oh, gosh. Um I mean, it's such a privilege to do interviews with so many of our really bright and wonderful guests and, you know, to continue to kind of have this community um, of support around general practice, which I'm really excited I kind of get Mm. to restart this year. Yeah, it's been cool, isn't it? Um, What about you, Tom? Um, Yeah, it's been fun. It's been, like I say, there's so many people that I've had a chance to chat to. I think my, my big... Yeah, I want to say Susanna Sullivan, speaking to her about her book, um, The Sleeping Beauties. That was a real eye-opener and just so interesting to talk to her about that and made a lot of sense for a lot of the things that I see in practice uh, in terms of functional illness and how we made me think a lot more about how we think about uh, health and, and disease and illness. Um, and, and lots more besides. Yeah, it's been it's been fun. Um, yeah. What about you, Navjoy? Um, well, a ditto what you both said, and I think we're so lucky to have so many amazing guests who want to come come onto the show. So that's been a real highlight. But I think one thing that's 
been happening more and more as the podcast has been going on is hearing from our listeners, which has been really amazing and really wonderful mm. um, and really gratifying. We, yeah, we love hearing from listeners. So if you're listening now and you have any feedback that you want to send us, do it. Please do it. Um, yeah. Either you can email us at practice at bmj.com. You can leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts, um, find us on social media. But I just thought maybe it would be nice at the start of our episode just to go through some of the comments we've been getting from listeners because we get some really like engaged and mm. uh, thoughtful uh, feedback. So I thought it'd be yeah nice for us to go, th- go through some of that. Um, well, I-, I thought I'd start with our most recent episode, um, which was on the crisis in primary care in the UK. And we had, uh, someone was kind enough to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And uh, they had a a really good comment, actually. We'd been discussing in the episode about the problems with making appointments um, and getting appointments uh, with with GPs, uh, which we refer to as access. But this listener said, um, another good episode, so thank you for that. Um, I do think you need to stop saying access and use capacity instead. Primary care has no problem with access. On the contrary, it is unable to close its doors. Patients don't go and shout at the hospital reception until they get an appointment, do they? The problem is capacity. This is related to workforce and workloads. This needs to be the focus and link to patient safety. An unlimited contract is now unsafe due to demand levels and much change. Which I thought was an excellent point, point. and uh, and I, I've duly noted that. I, I think that's a really excellent point. Hmm. It does change the whole way you look at, well, the future or what the solutions would be if you if you think about capacity exactly. rather than access, doesn't it? Yeah. So hmm. thanks very much to that listener, and uh, yeah, we'll definitely take that on board. Um, we also had a really amazingly kind of generous. Um, email in response to our episode from a few weeks ago which was about eating disorders and this is from a from a GP with lived experience of an eating disorder and I just want to share part of the email um, that they sent which I thought was really helpful and informative and educational Hmm. so I'm just going to read a part of that out as well okay and they've they've given their permission haven't they for us to yes so I'm a GP, but have battled with anorexia for 17 years and only just started getting help and started my recovery journey. I feel it is so important for GPs to gain better experience and more confidence in approaching eating disorders as they are a crucial part of getting help and success. One thing I feel was missed from the podcast is the feeling of guilt common in many of those affected. Guilt about the lies, manipulation and secrecy that inevitably comes from the illness, but also for the distress and trauma it causes to your loved ones. I feel it's so important that GPs should try and address this and help the sufferer understand that they have an illness, like any other physical illness, that they have not asked for and are not responsible for. This can help reduce that guilt and the subsequent sadness, anxiety and withdrawal that this can lead to. I'm also aware that many people develop disorders or live with them beyond childhood and adolescence, like myself, for fear of seeking help, and there can be high numbers of medical professionals suffering. I was very scared to reach out that it may compromise my career and be detrimental to my professional future. This hasn't happened at all, but I've realised that my personal health is of such importance to be a good GP and that I can be of great value to patients with mental illness due to my personal struggles. 
I wonder if you would consider a podcast regarding doctors managing their own mental illnesses to try and reduce the stigma for those afraid to reach out. Finally, I also wanted to mention the Sea Charity who have some excellent online resources and support areas for sufferers and carers. So we can um, we can definitely uh, link to that in our show notes as well. But just overall mm. to this listener, thank you so much for so generously sharing your experiences mm. and insight with us. And that idea about an episode on doctors managing their own mental illness is a great idea, don't you think, Jenny? Such a good idea. And I'm so just humbled by that listener for listening and providing us with that really brave and honest and personal um, feedback. And I think it's such a good point as well. You know, we, we, I think, potentially framed the issue around kind of adolescence and when these things kind of start. But the fact is that people fight this battle for a really long time and relapse and have moments where things are relatively worse and where things are relatively better. And, um, yeah, just thank you so much. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Um, uh, and I received a lovely email as well a few weeks ago after our team debriefings episode. Um, I remember, well, part of it was saying that the menu thing worked really well. So, you know, we, we did a starter and main course and, um, you know, beforehand, I was like, I'm not sure if this is going to work. So we had a nice, uh, <laughs> nice feedback on that. But what they said, what, Navjot, you've been sort of preparing this part of the episode. So what else did you pull out from that? Yeah. So, yeah, so that was great feedback that people mm. like a bit of variety and like having, you know, different, different parts of a buffet to choose from. But um, also had some great feedback um, and ideas for the future as well. So, um, I'll, I'll just read out some of these ideas, which I think might resonate with uh, listeners as well. So this listener says, I would value having more discussion regarding practical ideas on the ground, such as what are practices doing that works well for them? I'd like an opportunity to share and hear others' ideas. With increasing awareness of sitting being the new smoking, what are practices doing to enable people to stay well at work? We have a system for improved continuity of care, which we find works well, but we do, like most practices, struggle with access. What are others doing? We struggle to find a way to have whole practice meetings and I'd be interested to know how other practices are doing it. How are practices managing the potential tensions between salaried GPs and partners? We never have an open discussion at work with the salaried GPs about the potential tension and I do wonder if this would be beneficial. How practices coping when patients are declining to wear masks? It saddens me that in our area there is this discussion about the need for security on the doors of practices. What are GPs doing about the climate emergency? We've done that one. Yeah, we have. <laughs> yeah, we have. yeah, so we can tick that one. Um, but, but, but there are some really excellent ideas, don't you think, Tom? Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, yeah, particularly the the one that particularly jumps out is the the partner versus not versus, but it is sometimes a versus salaried or sessional GP kind of thing, which which often feels like one of the many elephants in the yeah. room that we don't talk too much about. Which I guess is what we're always looking to, to talk yeah, about. Yeah, and I think I mean our episode on the the GP crisis, we talked a little about about how the model of how we've set up general practice in the UK may be one of the the stumbling blocks that makes it hard to move forward just because we want to hang on to certain elements of that and but not let go to of others. So um, 
yeah, so that that's definitely seems like fertile territory. So, yeah, so we're really grateful to listeners, all listeners, and, mm. and those ones that we read out who we we all kept anonymous. So I'm sorry if you were hoping that your name would be read out, but um, uh, sorry, I wasn't organised enough to get permission from you. But we're really really grateful um uh, to you for getting in touch. Um, we've also, I mean, we've also had emails, just lovely emails from people saying how much they've been enjoying the podcast um you know here's another one i share deep breath in with my gp colleagues colleagues and often encourage them to have a listen um i appreciate your honest dialogue which doesn't feel scripted i mean i'm literally reading this off a page right now but this is (laughs) (laughs) yeah um and um and i think the theme that comes through um in a lot of these emails is that um it's reassuring to have that connection to other GPs and and I think hearing from other GPs or hearing the experiences of GPs can can feel um reassuring and comforting at a time when you know we're dealing with a mm-hmm. with a very difficult job um and one listener said this podcast isn't just a deep breath in it's a breath of fresh air which oh. is lovely um <laughs> but just to I, I don't want people to, to think you can only um get in touch with uh yeah. with nice things people but we'll but we'll only read it out if it is nice yeah <laughs> well i'm about to read out something just to balance it all out because i don't want people to think we're getting too big-headed this is another review that was left on the bmj podcast page deep breath in please change presenters for some who have a bit of experience and knowledge and will not burst into tears every five minutes <laughs> topic's good i listen for the interviewed expert experts not for the tedious chit chat and reflections after so <laughs> We're well, yeah. not everyone's cup of tea, but um, I think we are some people's cup of tea. And um, we have stopped crying. I think uh, we, we, we. Well, I mean, we, you, you say we. I mean, that was that was me. That was <laughs> I'm the crier, and I have really tried to tone that down. So I'm sorry. <laughs> but no, yeah, so your feedback works. So yeah, do, do send us your feedback, and um, we might read it out. We definitely hear it and listen to it, and um, and reflect on it. Um, at like good GPs. I think I think we do. We really want to hear from GPs. Maybe visit some GPs, and um, you know, I, th- I think we really want to reflect the kind of uh, issues that are important to, you know, jobbing GPs, the things that matter. So, and and hearing from you and being in touch with you will really help us do that. Yeah. And so with that in mind, shall we have the rest of the episode where we don't really cover any of that and just <laughs> do some Christmas <laughs> Do things? our own thing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure. Go for it. Um, so, so we've got two parts coming up. We've got um, something about the Christmas issue, well, two things about the Christmas issue of the BMJ. Um, and, and we've got a Christmas quiz, which we'll save to, to the end. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medico-legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, 
we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. So should we start with the, the Christmas, well, something from the, the Christmas episode of the BMJ? Um, and I know you, you've both been working on this in different parts of the journal. And, and Jenny, I think you're going to take us through this one. Every year, it's such a joy to pull together whimsical articles, which are still mostly rigorous science, um, and that sometimes just look at these really funny or interesting questions. And um, I really encourage everyone to have a look at the issue when it comes out, because there's some really great content this year um, about, for example, does a Christmas card mean that you're going to have greater participant um, follow-up in a clinical trial. Spoiler alert, no, it doesn't. Bah humbug. Um, but there are some other really interesting research pieces. And one I wanted to highlight actually explores um, a, a common idiom, which is used to describe a task that's not that hard, which we would say, oh, it's not brain surgery or... Oh, it's not rocket science. And these really creative researchers sought to measure uh, whether um, brain surgeons or rocket scientists were more intelligent as a way of giving us insight as to which idiom is most correct. And I had the pleasure of speaking to some of the researchers on the paper. So let's have a listen. My name is Dr. Inga Usher. I'm a final year clinical PhD student studying a rare bone cancer, Cordoma, and an aspiring neurosurgeon. My name is Ashwin Chari, and uh, I am a neurosurgical trainee um, and uh, coming towards the end of a PhD uh, studying children with epilepsy and trying to understand why uh, in some of these children we are able to cure their uh, or cure their seizures uh, with an operation and others we're not. Uh, so the, the phrase is, it's not, uh, it's not rocket science and it's not brain surgery, are commonly used. There's a famous British sketch about it by Mitchell and Webb. Um, but no one subjected these to scientific scrutiny, which was what we set out to do with, I think, some interesting results with some implications for diversity and planning the workforce. I'm just so curious. I thought this was really clever. How did you think to do this study? Ever since I started neurosurgical training, which is back in 2014, um, it's kind of been an academic ambition of mine to have a Christmas BMJ article. Um, and, and here we are. And it's so, and it's, so it's fantastic to, to finally be here. Um, but I think the, the inspiration sort of came from the Christmas BMJ study in 2011, which pitted um, anaesthetists against um, orthopedic surgeons. And uh, that sort of framework 
uh, in the context of that, that exact Mitchell and Webb um, video that uh, Inga referred to, I had this kind of idea to, to pit these two specialties against each other in a way, um, and spent the next five years not really having the time, resources, energy to devote to it. <laughs> um, uh, I obviously had shared it with a bunch of friends, um, but, but had never actually got around to making it happen. And the, the impetus to make it happen came from uh, a really, really good friend of ours called Alex Alamri, who started a charity called Brainbook, um, whose aim was to kind of demystify neurosurgery and neurosciences to the general population, be that medical students, patients, um, relatives, etc. Um, and so as part of uh, uh, Brainbook's charity, um, he wanted to put together a research team um, and asked me to, to lead that research team. And I thought, here you go, here's a group of individuals who are really keen to do something that, that may have a kind of wider social impact um, and, and have the resources, time and energy to then make it happen. Um, and really the credit must go to Inga for, for driving this and, and getting it to where it is now. Great, and what did you find? That was very interesting. So we did two studies in a sense. Uh, we did one where we pitched the, the aerospace engineers or the rocket scientists um, against head-to-head uh, -head against the neurosurgeons to work out whether one can be a bit smugger in the presence of the other. And the space engineers or the rocket scientists came out on top in terms of mental rotation and manipulation. So this was tested with um, shapes that you had to move around the screen in your head and then find solutions in timed conditions on the test and unsurprisingly the space engineers came out a bit better than us neurosurgeons. However <laughs> the neurosurgeons also won, <laughs> won something for themselves and we are better at semantic problem solving or recalling the definitions of rare words which I think is probably related to learning very long lists of very archaic words at medical school. The, the way in which this um, test works was really, really interesting to us. It's a field that um, neither Inga or I are experts in, um, and we really valued our, uh, the input from our colleagues who, who came up with this test. But essentially, the, the premise is that IQ is not just one measurable thing, uh, um, and that actually the important thing is to break it down into kind of mutually distinct domains. Um, and exactly what those domains are will vary based on um, the population that you're testing. So what we did with this particular study is they, the participants did um, 12 different tests uh, and we used uh, a kind of um, factor analysis, which is a statistical technique, to break it down into loads of different domains that were kind of different to each other. So um, the domains that we got were memory, um, mm -hmm. spatial problem solving, mental manipulation, semantic problem solving, which is what Inga's just explained, and then two speed, so problem solving speed and memory recall speed. And actually, I think that the real take home message is that um, of these six domains, in four of those domains, there was absolutely no difference between <laughs> neurosurgeons and, and rocket scientists. And actually each one had kind of one winning domain to, to take home, um, which, which kind of made sense to us. The, as, as Inga mentioned, the semantic problem solving, I think relates to the fact that we learn way too much Latin and Greek. Um, <laughs> and so we're familiar with those etymologies for rare words. Um, and then the mental manipulation side is, is I guess, a, a key component of, of the engineering disciplines. And so it's not surprising that the rocket scientists came on top in, in that domain. 
Yes, of course. Um, so as Ashwin said, the important point is that there, there um, wasn't a huge difference between the, uh, the rocket scientists and the brain surgeons in most of the domains. As he said, it was just these two domains that I mentioned earlier. And then actually pitting the neurosurgeons and the, uh, the rocket scientists against the general population in a similar fashion didn't reveal a huge number of differences, um, which is I think something that, that we perhaps wanted to see. So in the original Great British Intelligence Test, this, this is going to sound a bit like a, what someone called a Lake Wobegon sort of uh, fantasy, but over nine, they said that 90% of the British population scored above average on one of those domains. So there are multiple different domains that are tested. And actually most people, uh, unsurprisingly good at one thing and maybe better than average at one thing, which is a really um, nice outcome from that study. And in a similar fashion, this is what we found with, with our study. So actually between the rocket scientists and the general population, we didn't see any differences, any significant differences. They were they displayed a range of cognitive abilities and similar to the general population or our control population. With the neurosurgeons, we saw an interesting trend that went both ways. So we saw one trend in which the uh, neurosurgeons were slightly scored slightly higher than the general population in terms of um, processing speed. And then one trend uh, we saw, uh, which was the memory recall speed was actually a little bit slower neurosurgeons compared to the general population, and hmm. um, I think was was kind of nice in that I think both groups balanced out against the general population. And, and, and one of the, uh, that was one of the main reasons why we chose this test in a way was that, um, that the Cognitron guys had spent a lot of time uh, administering tests to members of the British public um, as part of this great British intelligence test that they did. Um, so in the end, although it was administered to over 250,000 people uh, in the UK, uh, we had a population of about 18,000 who had done the exact same battery of 12 tests that, that we had administered to our rocket scientists and brain surgeons. Um, and we wanted to compare both, um, both groups to the general population. And the reason for this was to identify whether there was anything special, whether you know the pedestal given to these specialties by these phrases was justified. Mm -hmm. um, and as the title says, as it says on the tin, <laughs> we don't think so clearly. Um, you know, we're we're just we're just any old people. I, I, I feel I can say we are neurosurgical trainee, but I feel I can say we. Um, we're just you know people who choose to do this as our career. We most of us are in a very lucky position that we really enjoy what we do um, and we're really passionate about it and that's what kind of makes us put in the, the time and effort to do it um, but hopefully this will serve as a um, as an inspiration to people who want to do you know difficult or perceived difficult specialties um, stem specialties that they feel there may be barriers to getting into um, hopefully this will serve as an inspiration to these people to say actually I can do it if I want to do it I know behind the big man there's a lover I know behind the man I see Very good. I like good. I like that um, genre of Christmas BMJ article of that kind of compare specialty and I think it's popular with um, readers of the Christmas BMJ as well and the the article that they mentioned um, from 2011 which was comparing 
strength and intelligence in um, orthopedic surgeons and anaesthetists. I mean, it just has one of my favourite titles, orthopedic surgeons as strong as strong as an ox and almost twice as clever, which I think is really funny. <laughs> but I mean, it. Um, it the, I think the study goes on to find that the orthopedic surgeons perform better, that were stronger and more and smarter than than their anaesthetist colleagues. So. Mm. So jokes on the anaesthetists, I guess. Um, but very, very good. good. And, and should we, um, the Mitchell and Webb um, sketch, because people might not know exactly what that is, I, I'd suggest everyone Googles Mitchell and Webb brain surgeons versus um, rocket scientists, because we, we all had a look at that, didn't we? It's very funny, isn't it? Yeah. It's... Yeah, and we'll stick a link to, to that also in the show notes. So for some very long show notes today. Uh, thank you, Eleanor, <laughs> who makes the show notes. <laughs> um so should we move on? Um, so speaking of intelligence tests, we've got the, the quiz. So I, I and I'm afraid I've done this again. I did it last year, and Jenny, and it wasn't you, Navjoy. It was um, Helen, Kat, and Helen, wasn't it? And they, they were not happy about the the very numerical nature of the quiz and how every every question I was asking for a, <laughs> to estimate risk of things. So we, <laughs> anyway, we're going to test your your um, a bit of an intelligence test for you too, if that's okay. <laughs> Yeah, great. Thanks. I love being publicly shaped. Yeah. <laughs> They're not really, not really. Um, so I've done three three sections to the quiz, uh, and one of them is based on another BMJ Christmas article. Um, the title of the paper is A Smidge or a Bridge Too Far, and this relates to um, an ICU slang dictionary, which is um, definitely worth a read. It's quite, quite, quite good fun to, to go through. I'm going to test you on the contents of this dictionary uh, and see if you can um, see if you know what these slang terms mean. So I'm just going to say the terms, and you just don't. You know, we don't have buzzers. Just just pipe up um, when when you feel you've, you've got an answer. So, what is a bag squeezer? Uh, is it an anaesthetist? Yes, <laughs> that's right. One point to you. Oh. <laughs> that is an anaesthetist. Yeah, Did I've you, never heard that you've before. Never heard that one. Yeah. More anaesthetist bashing, great. <laughs> um, okay, now a term here. So what what do we mean by this term? Um, the closest crocodile to the canoe. <laughs> oh, God, no idea. <laughs> the closest, closest um, crocodile to the What could that mean? Is it, so... Oh, is it, is, it the, is it the patient who is who has the worst prognosis? Um. No, it's similar to that, though. It's um, So according to... I'm going to read out their definition. So it's the most urgent clinical problem. So mm. they say ICU patients frequently have multiple pathologies with conflicting mm. treatments. In these situations, the only option is to whack the closest crocodile to the canoe. I mean, how does that help? Why don't you just say, this is our most urgent clinical problem? <laughs> how does a crocodile closest to the canoe make that any shorter or easier to understand? Yeah. Sorry, I'm uh, already in griping because I'm not very well. Oh, fine. Yeah, okay. yeah. But I, I thought there was, a, there, was a, there was a GP coming up. A GP parallel there. You know, if someone comes in with their list of twenty problems. That's, that's true. a strategy we have, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah. Well, let's. We can probably deal with. We'll look at one or two of these today. What's the closest crocodile what? to a canoe? <laughs> and then they just oh, look that's at you. Very good, Tom. <laughs> very good. Well, honestly, it. if if I was that patient. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not I sure mean, you'd use maybe the you term. could get away with it if you practiced in, like, I don't know, the Everglades or something. But in <laughs> in 
South London, I don't know how well that would go down. But I like it. Yeah. Okay. Okay, next one. Here's my favourite term here. Uh, crispy. Oh, dry. Dehydrated. Yeah. Oh, you're back. You're in there. One all. Okay, good. Yeah, we used to have a... a when I was a house officer, as a cardiology reg who would always use the term crispy on a ward round. It would, it would just make <laughs> us so happy. It's like, this patient came in, they're crispy. <laughs> and like, that's it. That's all he needs to say. Anyway. Uh, did make you happy because... Dry. Yeah. But did, did that not reflect on your management of the patient? Oh, no, no. This is people being admitted. Not after okay. my... No, no. I mean, yeah. Well, let's not talk about that. Yeah, let's not talk about that. <laughs> um, so, iPhone positive adjective... Oh, God. Oh, it's um, a patient is alert enough to be using the phone. So it's kind of being used as like a prognostic sign. Yes. Yes, that's right. Um, And they say, like many doctors, intensivists often favor Apple's iPhone, but other models of mobile phone are available. (laughs) Okay, next one. Uh, What's a Movibomb? Pardon? Movibomb. Movibomb. Oh, that sounds like it could be a, a reaction to... A laxative? Um, yeah, I could give you half a point there. It's um, a large dose of Movicol, at least a sachets. Um, yeah, but again, oh, they it's say... it's not the outcome. No, it's, it's, it's the Sorry. treatment. I took it to a... I took it to a... a oh, man. A, a, that's, that's the kind fine. of place I could take it to, yeah. So we'll have more Movicol chat later. So we'll come back to stool. Um, not fit for a haircut... I mean, it sounds like a patient who is so unwell that that there would be a candidate for a, a procedure. Uh, yes, yes, not a very nice term, not a bit of a. Uh, but, no. Um, but people you do sometimes use within, you know, gosh, a safe space, so to speak. These terms. Yeah. Would you? Well, but this would be a good point to shout out um, uh, an episode from. Um, a podcast in our family of podcasts, Sharp Scratch, who had oh. a great episode on dark humour and how we use dark mm. humour in medicine. Yes. What was the TLDR? Oh, well, nice. just just kind of exactly that, that, you know, we um, have a tough job. We work, we have kind of close, intense relationships with um, our colleagues and sometimes dark humour or ways of referring to things that maybe people outside the job might might frown upon get used you know and but it's it's one way that we cope and with that okay one more and then we'll go on to um a more serious nice guideline um round uh vitamin h what's vitamin h heparin no um Happiness. <laughs> Trust you to, to do that. Uh, no, it's haloperidol. Oh, God. <laughs> also, could also, also be. horrible. <laughs> oh, okay, right. in age. Goodness me. Yeah. So two and a half to enough, Charlie, and one to you, Jenny. Sorry. Really? I yeah. thought Jenny did better than that. <laughs> okay, round two is... Um, I mean, it seemed a good idea when I was writing it, but um, maybe a bit boring. Uh, nice guidelines. You know, have you been reading your nice guidelines this year? <laughs> yes, of course. Okay, well, we'll find out. I've got four questions about which testing you on your knowledge of updated nice guidelines in 2021. 
gosh. So, Thanks, Tom. Really bringing the yeah, fun, aren't you? If um, people can just skip about three minutes ahead if they don't want to listen to this bit. Um, so question one, uh, which of these is recommended by the NICE Chronic Pain Guideline for Management of Chronic p- Primary Pain? Um, so we've got gabapentin, benzodiazepines, duloxetine, paracetamol, or lidocaine patch? Paracetamol? I think it's duloxetine. Navjoy, correct. Yeah, sorry, Jenny. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> uh, I put the lidocaine patch there because particularly like, UK listeners will... We have. Are you aware of the lidocaine patch? So prescribing, we're constantly getting told off whenever we prescribe a lidocaine patch because they're expensive and they don't work. And so, but I think they're in the pain clinic, you know, patient GP letter <clears throat> template. Just exactly, exactly. We're told to prescribe them by a specialist, and then we get bashed on the head for prescribing prescribing them. Anyway, um, welcome question two. to life in UK <laughs> primary care. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so nice acne guideline uh, which of these first line treatments is not contraindicated in pregnancy so these are all topical fixed combinations so we've got adapalene and benzoyl peroxide tretinoin and clindamycin or benzoyl peroxide and clindamycin oh the last one yes yeah I actually read that guideline helpful yeah there you go and remembered it (laughs) <laughs> uh, so and the, fa- the last question AF um, so there was a new guideline update I think on, on management of AF um, and assessment so which bleeding risk tool has replaced has bled in the NICE guideline due to its high accuracy in predicting absolute bleeding risk uh, no I've got three options don't worry uh, so is it the okay. Wrigley's tool Orbit tool or the Tic Tac tool Oh, I like it. Very good. Oh, now I'm embarrassed. I don't know. Is it Orbit? Yes. Yes, it is. Yay. Do you like that? Do you, what's your favorite uh, chewing chewing gum or breath freshener brand? I'm, I like I it. I was going to say Eclipse. I don't oh. know it. Is that a US thing? See, this? I, I just feel like I'm at an unfair advantage, disadvantage <laughs> here. This, this is not... <laughs> Do you Are we know, speaking the same language anymore? Do you know Spearmint Extra, Jenny? <laughs> That's my, my <laughs> chewing gum choice. I do. I do. Yeah. <laughs> Got a yeah. tub of those in my car. Bad for the environment. Navtry, sorry. Oh, okay. Sorry. I'll, I'll just have bad breath. <laughs> uh, right. And then the last part of our quiz is the Bristol Stool Chart Quiz. Uh which is drawn from a, very, a recent article that uh, we've published on childhood constipation, which uh, which has gone down really well. We've got, got lots of poo emojis on Twitter, uh, you know, liking the, the article. <laughs> uh, and I think it's, you... it's such a good article. I really... Um, it is. It's good. I, I will find that very helpful for my <clears throat> clinical practice. And it includes sure. um, poo charts that people can print, you can print off or send to, to, to parents um, if you want. And varieties to... of them as well, not yes. just one, but yeah, you can choose. Yeah. So on, in the article, there's the paediatric Bristol stool chart, which helpfully gives you a, a food or other thing that uh, children will will be familiar with. That, that tells them what type of stool that is. So mostly food stuff. So I'm going to tell you the, the food type and you can tell me what type of 
stool that that kind of equates to on the chart. Okay, let's start with uh, an easy one. So, uh, rabbit droppings. Is it? It's four or five. I think it's type one. It's type one. It's type one. So rabbit droppings. The, the, it's type one. Yeah, it's the, the hardest. The pellets. The little pellets. Pellets. Okay. okay. Uh, Jenny, do you do you in the US do you yeah, have do you, do you a thing this, where the Bristol stool chart is labelled on the back of every um, toilet, basically of every behind every door? It's everywhere. So you no, kind of. I mean, I'm. I I use this. I use okay. the adult version of the tool all the time. Um, but I I just always have associated like um, rabbit pellets with the like IBS. Uh, constipation mm-hmm. one, and I'm just used to starting at like thick and going to yeah. like thick and salad, going to watery. Uh, it is anyway. that the order of that is a bit odd, but I did it. Do, mm-hmm. you, do you have it like the post? I just recall, particularly in the hospital, just the poster was everywhere. No, <laughs> no it's not, it's like... not posted almost anywhere. In fact, okay. I don't actually know of other GPs in the US who frequently use this. Oh. Okay, so let's start with um. Which type of stool from type one to seven um, looks like a bunch of grapes? A bunch of grapes. <laughs> I'm gonna say type three. Yeah, I would say three as well. Yeah, close. Two is type two. Okay. Um, next one, uh, corn on the cob. Which? Oh god, that's disgusting. Disgusting. <laughs> disgusting. This is so unappetizing. Um, yeah. I think that's Dylan type three. I think that's type two. Two. No. Well, we yeah, just said think... that bunch of grapes is type two. Oh, you so... said the other one was type two. Okay, yeah, then I agree but with Jenny. I'm going to give Jenny three. the point for that because yeah. she said it first. Yep, type three. Uh, <laughs> chicken nuggets. Every child's favourite. Type five. Yes, yes, it is type five. Yep. Uh, and let's see two more. Um, gravy. Ugh. Types. Six, seven. It is seven. It is seven. And uh, let's just finish up with porridge. Oh, God. That must be six. Yes. There we go. Thank you. Nice. Thank you for ruining those foods for us. It's okay. Particularly gravy yeah. in the run-up to Christmas. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it does seem a very odd place to end the quiz and this, this podcast <laughs> for the whole year, doesn't it? <laughs> But that is the end of my quiz. Um, oh, do you want the final scores? How did we do? Yeah. Um, yeah. So Jenny has scored five points, and Navjoy, you have won because you have scored seven and a half. Oh, Yay! type seven. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Yours is a, your gravy and um, your chicken nuggets, Jenny. <laughs> I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> corn, corn, corn nuggets. <laughs> Great. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, yeah, so that's that's the end of the quiz, and that's the end of this episode and the end of this podcast for this year. So we will see you back in 2022 um, with, with more episodes, and please get in touch, practice at bmj.com uh, or anywhere else you can think of. Uh, if you'd like to suggest anything for the podcast or come on the, the podcast, um, yeah, we'd love to hear from you.
I think we should do some some proper thank yous. We we do thank you to our guests. Um, so thank you to Jenny and Navjoit. And thank you to Ashwin and Inga for their wonderful paper in this year's Christmas issue and for joining me to talk about their findings. Uh, and I think we should should mention the other people involved with the podcast, but you know that you don't hear that do a lot of work actually. So Duncan, definitely our producer, who's oh, always yeah. in the background editing everything and telling us what we're <laughs> or setting us straight. So thank you, Duncan. Um, there's uh, Eleanor, Eleanor Bell. She listens to every episode and does the the show notes and does a lot of the Yay. yeah the, the, the back office stuff. So thank you so much, Eleanor. Uh, also thanks to, to Kelly Brendel who often um, summarises the podcast for the BMJ so that people actually <laughs> hear about us and listen uh, Paul Simpson who he's like the, the, the grandfather of the podcast I'm not sure <laughs> he was certainly involved in yeah. getting us set up and getting us uh, funded uh, so thank you Paul uh, and podcast then podcast granddad yes podcast granddad uh, Olive who is um, another editor and producer for the podcast and and then I think the final one to to Childcare, who pr- provide the music um, and actually have a, a new album out this year, which is very good and it's doing really well. And you'll hear them on Radio One and things like that. So um, Childcare, do the music and do get take a listen to, to their latest music on um, Spotify or wherever. And the final thanks to, to you, our listeners. Um, we'll see you next year. Take care.